Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we've got some Blu-ray release news for Comrades, Almost a Love Story. Netflix news as well, buying a local documentary from Sundance. Some Andy Lau news that is a bit unfortunate. And we'll be talking about our films this week, where Kevin looks at Bob Lamb's latest feature, Lucky Fat Man. And I'll be talking about XXX, The Return of Xander Cage. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk in a secret rave in the Philippines is Mr. Kevin Ma. Oh, sorry. Hey, Paul. How's it going? I'm going all right. How about you? Yes, we are up fast approaching uh, Chinese New Year. Uh, I think... uh, we're just a week or so away from the holiday, right? And we've, we're almost at the end. We're, we're recording all pretty much at the end of January here almost. Uh, 2017's already flying by. What's happening? Where's the time going? Yeah. I don't know. Well, what were you going to do for Chinese New Year? I mean, I'm sure there's not much of the atmosphere over there in, uh, in Florida, but uh, what are you guys doing? No, we do have a, a small group of friends that are former Hong Kong people who have, you know, Hong Kongers who have immigrated to the U.S. and who live in Florida and specifically South Florida. So that's the thing with the Internet. You can find groups, you can find subgroups of groups, and you can find sub-subgroups of groups. So we've, <laughs> we've got a very specific group of, of friends that we've met through social media, um, and I think they're going to be organizing, you know, some kind of traditional, you know, Chinese New Year dinner kind of thing. And, you know, it's just a few families getting together and, you know, having the traditional food and exchanging some red packets and that kind of thing so we can sort of carry on the traditions. I'll see if they want me to bring down a, uh, you know, uh, a uh, I Love Hong Kong movie or a, a suitable New Year movie or something as well, um, just to try and stick with the spirit. But yeah, you know, the rest of Florida probably won't know anything of what's going on. Yeah, I don't think it's even a, a, a holiday there. I mean, back in San Francisco, because... Um, uh, you have a pretty big Chinese population. For actually, so actually, uh, Chinese New Year has always been a school holiday. Uh, actually, in, in San Francisco. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's the one thing that I miss a little bit about Hong Kong is that, you know, you get the Western holidays and you get the Chinese holidays, so you get the best of both worlds, as it were. Um, you know, in terms of school being out and, and things like that. So, we're we're trying to figure out how we're going to do it. Because if we do it, we don't want to do it too late, like on a Sunday, because all of our kids will have to go to school Monday morning, and we'll all have to get up to get them ready for school on a Monday morning. So um, we're still trying to figure out the logistics of when we're going to do it. But that is neither here nor there. But we are going to be talking about some of the holiday films that will be coming our way, I think starting from uh, our next episode. But for this episode, we've got some films to talk about. We also have some news to get to. So let me throw the ball back over to Kevin's court with this week's news. Over here at the news desk, um, I mean, before we get to the serious news, we got the really serious news, which which is Comrades, almost a love story. The, the, you know, the classic Peter Chan film is coming on Blu-ray for the first time. Yes. Yeah, so this is something that you've posted up on Facebook and caught my eye and the eye of uh, many other people. I mean, prior to this, we've only had what I think like a Maya blue uh, DVD version of this out there. 
did we even have a DVD? I think it did, but it went out of print, right? So yeah. it was actually a very expensive um, a commodity among the secondhand market um, because Warner Brothers has held the, the rights to the film for so many years. It was actually even hard to difficult to get a, um, a, a theatrical screening of the film here in Hong Kong until a few years ago when uh, uh, they finally let let the uh, Hong Kong International Film Festival show it. Um, and that was like the first public screening in, in, in quite a few years. Um, I think a year or two ago, Peter Chan actually took the film and and had it restored um, uh, at, a, at a fairly famous uh, film lab in Italy. And he, apparently I've heard that he paid for it himself. But the rights reverted, well, Warner Brothers held the rights anyway, and now they're finally releasing the Blu-ray, which I assume is that very print. Um, in Korea, uh, this is the very first release, um, at least in high def, um, and and apparently um, it comes out in Korea in March, having on March 9th or something like that. Um, there's no extra to speak of, and um, apparently Warner Brothers was holding on to this film so tight that I've heard when a certain um, uh, uh, local film organization tried to even use a still for it, Warner Brothers charged them 2,000 US dollars to use a still um, for publication. So so it, it finally, after what, holding on, holding on to it for how many years now, 20 years, they're finally releasing this on a proper release. Um, I guess they figured that they're not gonna make, they're not gonna be, no one's gonna pay them five thousand U.S. dollars or however what extravagant amount they charge for a theatrical screening, and they finally just released the damn thing on home video. Yeah, and, you know it's about time, and it's a shame that these big media companies can basically hold films hostage like this for years. Um, you know, again, I'm not an advocate for for piracy or things like that, but it's understandable when you do the when you do stuff like this, right? You, you people want to see the film, but you know, you can't charge them an arm arm and a leg to do it, especially when it's a 20-plus-year-old film. Um, and so, yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to turn to copies and copies of copies and, and things like that. If they take a more middle-of-the-road approach and release these things to festivals or to other through other sources that are, you know, somewhat affordable, I think it would be fine, right? Well, yeah, um... I, I don't know how long for how much longer uh, 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 Warner Brothers is going to hold on to this property because you know Peter Chan is still a big name and comrades. Almost a long story. This film is a huge name in Hong Kong film history, and um, I, I don't know what the deal was or how what the deal between Peter Chan and Warner's was when he when he paid for the uh, restoration of the print. But um, I wondered. I thought for a second that that that. Peter Chan actually took back the rights, or he was able to take back the rights in some degree uh, when he when he got the film restored. But um, like I said, the publisher of this DVD, of this Blu-ray, is Warner Brothers, so it seems like they're still holding on to the rights. But now I went to the link of the company that's selling it, and it is not, uh, you know, it's not a well-known U.S. you know company in the U.S. though, right? Do no, there's a Korean version. Do you have any, any a experience Korean. with with the? the group that's distributing this well there's a there's a warner brothers release so actually all the uh any any site that you can find that sells korean blu-ray theoretically should be holding it for example i mean i usually would first try and post the yes asia link because of my previous association the company and it's just the easiest for everyone to use but um they have not uh, a, a source to film yet so right now the two sites you can get it at is um Nova Media, which is where I bought my copy. Nova Media um, actually releases. Um, they're not only a uh, online retailer that sells Blu-rays. Uh, they also release uh, collectors' editions of certain films. Uh, they do blue uh, steel books, and they also handle uh, re-releases of older films. For example, they made uh, actually they had they they had huge success uh, last year with the re-release of uh, the theatrical re-release of uh, Eternal Sunshine, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So Nova Media is a pretty reputable company in Korea, um, even though some of their operation, I guess some of the, because they're not quite used to the overseas part of it, and I guess their English side, they they, they do pay a lot of um, uh, attention to the customers in a way you think that it's only like a five-man operation. But in Korea, it's a pretty big company. And the other site that you can get at at this moment is called Kimchi DVD. Um, 
one word kimchidvd.com. Both sites uh, are actually pre-reputable sellers um, because they sell a lot of Blu-rays and collect uh, collector's edition boxes. So a lot of uh, foreign collectors um, order from these sites. Um, it is my first time buying from Nova because um, before I always had different ways of getting Korean DVD or Korean films. But this is my first purchase of Nova. Um, but uh, as far as I know, they should be pretty good. All right. You have to keep us updated on you know how your how your order goes. Do you think that now that the ball is kind of rolling, that this film may eventually hit a digital version at some point in the not too distant future? You know, the thing is, I always thought that Warner Archive, you know, which has been releasing a few of these, um, quite a few of these Hong Kong films that Warner have been have been holding on to, I thought they would release it on uh, via their uh, Warner Archive or Warner Collection uh, DVDs, you know, like they did for Big Bullet and and uh, Who's a Woman? Who's a, who's a Man? Um, uh, but no, they decided to release in Korea, and and it's it's kind of weird because we're just past the 20th anniversary of the film. The the film was released on November 2nd, 1996, so we're just past the 20th anniversary. Um, and of course, there was nothing in Hong Kong um, uh, done for that really uh, for that anniversary. Um, but no, I I assume that Warner Archive in the States would release it at some point. And if you remember, they actually also made the films they released on DVD, they also made them available digitally for a period of time. Um, although I think the films, those films they released, like Big Bullet and The Blade, and, and all those other films, they're not on the Warner Archive uh, VOD website anymore, but they were uh, for for some time. Um, I don't know about international release. I don't know if Warner is going to make this an Asia-wide release because it isn't coming until March 9th, and Hong Kong Blu-rays don't come, don't get announced this early. I mean, for all we know, they may do an Asia-wide release and, and release in Hong Kong as well, but um, I can't tell at the moment. Right, right. And, I mean, for fans out there who want to get a hold of this, this isn't necessarily like a limited edition release. It's not something they necessarily need to to hop right on and, and worry about it selling out, do they? Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, you never know these older films. I know that, you know, if, if it comes out on like a steel book or something, then yeah, it gets snapped up like this, right? But um, um, as far as I know, it's still on sale after two days. <laughs> and uh, no, this, is, this isn't a collector's box or anything, but be, this being a first Blu-ray release, um, I will assume that there's going to be quite a few film fans who will jump on it. Um, I have no idea what the availability is going to be. And like I said, it, it might... Warner might do an Asia-wide release, but at least a Taiwan, Korea, Hong Kong release uh, for this uh, for this film. I I have no idea, but um, I let's face uh, uh, to be honest, I actually po- I should put up my order before I even posted it on Twitter, so I make sure I got my copy first. Right. Um, <laughs> so so um, if you guys are fans of the film and and you don't want to you don't like uncertainty the way that I don't, um, I would suggest you guys get your copy now. Yeah, yeah. I, I have have a copy of the original release somewhere in in storage, um, and I'm tempted to to go with this, but I am sort of disheartened that there are no features of any kind on it, and it just makes me wonder if at some point we might get, you know, if we don't get a digital version, maybe Peter Chan can get his hands back on the rights to it in such a way as that he could release something with some commentary or some interviews or, or, or something that makes it a bit more blu-ray worthy in my mind i guess to um, be to be honest peter chan has not never been very big on sort of revisiting um his his films uh well, well the fact that he doesn't hold up rights to a lot of his older films um says a lot but um i mean th- it was made at a time when you didn't have any they didn't do many making ofs. I mean, now in the age of YouTube, of course, you would make you would do making of videos uh, for for you know uh, the broadband TV stations, whatever, or for cinemas, or put on YouTube and things like that. But it was made at a time when you don't have a lot of these sort of things. So I can imagine there might not have been many extras to even begin with. And the fact that Peter Chan, it's not likely that Peter Chan would ever get back to rights to this film. Um, at least overseas rights, and when uh, here in Hong Kong, Golden Harvest hosts the rights. Um, 
actually no i think i think warner brothers writes sort of is, is, is umbrella for the whole world um so it's, it's not very likely you see a more sort of a feature pack edition or anything like that um so the, i think the fact that there's a, a high definition print and the first high definition print release in 20 years i think that's that's big enough for me all right. So if you are in, out there and interested and you get a hold of this film, you want to share your thoughts with us on it once it's in your hot little hands, uh, drop us a line and let us know. All right. Moving on, our next bit of news, um, some Netflix news. That's right. Uh, so Sundance, uh, the Sundance Film Festival is happening uh, in, in uh, up there in what, Utah, Colorado? I think Utah, right? Uh, Utah, Utah, definitely Utah, uh, up in Park City right now. And um, if you guys don't know, Sundance, in addition to being a film festival, is actually the biggest independent, uh, American independent film, essentially, market. It's not an official market, but it, there are a lot of, you know, even talk more about the films are actually the deals that come out of Sundance. Um, now, one of the films that, that got world premiere uh, at Sundance is a um, documentary about uh, Hong Kong activist joshua wong and uh that film actually produced by uh matthew torn the guy who did um lessons lessons in descent um had a premiere last friday it's called joshua teenager versus superpower um and uh today uh the trades are reporting that the film has been acquired by uh netflix already um for for low seven figure um netflix has worldwide rights uh to this documentary is directed by um, uh, Joe Piscatella. Um, Joshua Wong was also uh, actually uh, present at the at the Sundance Film Festival for the premiere. Um, uh, and this is uh, apparently Netflix's seventh acquisition at Star- Sundance already. But it's big because they got worldwide rights, which means that Hong Kong and you know the rest of Asia will get this film simultaneously later this year um, uh, when they premiere it uh, on the network. And and the other big thing is, I mean, this this comes off the heels of Netflix's decision to not pursue the Chinese market any longer, and the fact that they've got this film um, um, about and starring uh, a figure that is mistakenly known for being a Hong Kong independence supporter. Um, this means that Netflix has pretty much not considering the Chinese market anymore because once you buy a film about this guy and you release it in 190 countries, that sort of puts you on China's blacklist. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't dare to say it's a gutsy, it's a gutsy uh, acquisition, but you know, cause Netflix has been pumping a lot of money into documentaries and they do carry some of the best documentaries out there today. In fact, the 13th, which they actually financed in um just got an oscar nomination um about an hour ago uh before we recorded this so netflix has been very aggressive in and and they've been putting up very very good documentaries and if this film and the fact that they acquired this film is almost like a sort of a a guaranteed right for the quality it's some vouch vouching for the quality of film um so i don't want to say it's a gutsy acquisition uh, in terms of pol- politics, maybe they saw they saw what they thought was a great film with you know a very provocative idea, and they that's why they acquired it. But anyway, um, it, it 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 will not make China happy, and it certainly won't help if Netflix is still trying for the Chinese market. And I can be ninety five percent sure now they've really given up because they've got this film. I mean, he is an important figure, but I mean, as someone who lived here during it uh, during that time, and as someone who who you know live through that time that he lived in i mean i think it, I, I, it is made by someone who's not from hong kong and it would be sort of interesting to see what how they see this movement but what i'm worried about is it, it being sort of simplified because it is a very you know even within the occupy camp there's a lot of different different sort of camps within that and yeah. there's a real complexity on that on that side that i don't think a 75 minute documentary would tackle um and whether joshua wong is a worthy subject. I think that's up for discussion. I personally think that if if the, you know every, every I think every revolution, every movement needs a face, and if he's the guy that you know he's been there from the beginning, and if he's the guy that is chosen, then then so be it. Um, uh, I guess disclaimers. I voted for his political party, you know, at the at the, uh, at the election uh, last year. Um, it doesn't mean I like or dislike Joshua Wong, but. Um, 
but you know it I'm sure Hong Kongers would be very happy uh, about this. You know, to think well, their their cost is getting getting a global platform. Some, some of them, some of them. Well, okay, yeah, some of them, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting acquisition, and I think an interesting business decision on on the part of Netflix. You know, I do hope that this, I you know, for them to get a film like this, and for them to then cut off the films they have been getting things like phantom of the theater and and you know other things um i don't know if it's a good trade <laughs> well no well the thing is those chinese films that they buy they're not bought from china they're not bought from the chinese um distributor i think they're likely bought from the local distributor in the u.s mm. well ago okay so so i don't think there are any anything to worry about because they're all handled just like the um some of the hong kong films uh, or, or some of the european films we get here in hong kong actually done by the local distributor um rather than the uh the sale the, the national sales agent um so i don't i don't think we have to worry about you know uh chinese films not being available on netflix ever again um many of um i think uh u.s the, the china's china market though well i i never thought that china market needed netflix anyway so some sad news, though, next, uh, about our hero, Andy Lau. Yeah, um, as you guys may have heard, Andy Lau um, was shooting a uh, an advertisement in, in Thailand, and he had a bit of an accident um, involving a horse. Um, I'm not sure what the, the actual, what's the word, uh, occurrence or what actually happened is that, but the, the confirmed part is that he fell off a horse, and he might have been trampled on by the horse after falling off. Um, but anyway, he was um, sent back to Hong Kong last week, um, made the headline news, um, and now his management has released a statement that he has multiple fractures on his pelvis. Um, also, have, of course, co-muscle pulls and things like that, um, and that uh, Andy will have to be in the hospital for the next two months, um, and he will have to undergo an additional seven months of recovery period. So that puts him out of commission for the next nine months. Um, because of this fall. Uh, other than that, apparently he is okay, other than the intense pain and uh, that he's suffering. Um, uh, he does have a f- at least one or two films coming. He has a Shockwave, the Herman Yao film coming, I think, later this year. Apparently he will not be able to do promotion for that, so there's uh, no idea whether um, Universe will push back the release or whether they will try and just go ahead without Andy. Or maybe Universe will just do a reality show about Andy's recovery and use that as a PR, right? I don't know. Um, uh, and I'm not sure if it's under any other films, but, you know, Andy is one of the hardest working men in, in show business, so I think I'm sure he has a couple of films coming out this year. Um, but yeah, sad that uh, um, Andy Andy is going to be out of commission for nine months, although a uh, friend of the show, Sandy, uh, Sandy Learn, actually, you know, he pointed out that when he first heard about the fall, he thought of Christopher Weave, who who's obviously suffered much worse injury from his fall. Um, uh, so you know, I think I think it, this is what we say in Chinese that he 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 is uh, among the fortunate. He's one of the fortunate among the unfortunates. Uh, one of these sort of less severe cases, I guess, um, uh, with this kind of injury. Yeah, I had the same thought when I was reading the news. And there were a couple of erroneous news articles out there uh, discussing the extent of his injuries. And it was good to later get some more accurate news saying that, you know, he was injured, but he was going to be able to recover, uh, though his recovery was going to take a period of time. So I'm very thankful that he wasn't hurt worse than he had been and uh, that we will be able to see him back in action at some point uh, in, in the future, though. So speedy recovery to uh, Andy, and uh, we're all hoping that you get well soon. Drink more green tea, Andy. You're going to get better soon. And finally, our news this week about the film Village of No Return. Yes, Village of No Return is uh, one of the big... Um, Lunar New Year films this year in Taiwan. I should bring this up. So Taiwan gets three huge uh, uh, Lunar New Year release. Hong Kong, we get one small local uh, film, a sequel for a 20, 30-year-old film, and a Stephen Chow mainland China movie. What the hell? Okay, anyway. So <laughs> Village of No Return is um, is one of the big uh, Lunar New Year releases uh, over there in uh, uh, um 
in Taiwan, but actually uh, it's a co-production between China and Taiwan. Uh, the film stars Xu Qi, Tony Yang, and quite a few Taiwan stars. It's directed by Chen Yushun, who did uh, Zone Pro Site, which was a major hit a few years ago. Um, one of the major investors of the film was Wanda, um, aka the guys who own AMC and, and wants to own the rest of Hollywood. Um, but um, recently, because there were, of course, whatever netizens say must be true, right? Chinese netizens. They accuse uh, Chen Yushun of being a Taiwan, a pro-Taiwan independence uh, um, person. Um, so they started talking about boycotting the film. Of course, the director, Chang, has... He, he has come out and say that he is in no way uh, a pro-Taiwan independence and that he participated in the um, uh, protests for the Taiwan trade deal a few years ago, but that does not make him a pro-independence supporter. Um, and despite that statement, um, Chinese netizens are not known to listen to logic, so so they, they haven't quite stopped fanning the flame. Wanda smelling the trouble has reportedly uh, uh, withdrawn from as a distributor for the film. Um, and of course, Wanda being the big presence that it is, it owns um, China's biggest cinema chain. Um, supposedly, a lot of cinemas are not going to be uh, showing the film. Um, some of the early estimates say that the film will only get 0.8% uh, screenings of, of screenings uh, in China, which will hurt the film, obviously, because, you know, that means um, every 10 showings in a cinema per day, not even one showing goes to the film. Um, so that would hurt its chances at a box office, especially for something like Noon and New Year. Um, you know, this, when, this is a time when mo some of the films, a lot of the films make, or some of the highest grossing films of the year are released. So um, it would hurt the film quite significantly. And it's not a small budget film. I mean, it's a period film shot a set it was done as co-production which means they had a higher budget than usual and you got a couple of you know uh big ish stars uh so now their only hope may be trying to make their money back in taiwan it's hard to tell because like i said earlier um the competition in taiwan this year is quite huge you have a new uh, musical by the director of Sidek bali and cape number seven um and you also have hanky panky which is which stars um taiwan's uh favorite comedian Zhuge Liang uh, well among the older generation at least um, so it's going to be very tough going for them in Taiwan and it's certainly being tougher in China um, this sort of raises a, a more serious issue going on in China and it's sort of this new cultural revolution which means that any any um, uh, entertainer that includes Hong Kong and Taiwan um, they do anything that seems like dissent against the government they're suddenly being accused as being pro-independent or pro whatever and 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 netizens are more than happy to fan the flames um because they don't have they don't have capacity or they don't bother to understand the the political complexity within the, each issue for example like i said we we're talking about earlier joshua Wong, he's uh he's pro-democracy but he never said he was pro-independence those are two different issues, but for some reason, Chinese netizens have sort of put those on the same, the same, you know, same bow, whatever. And same in Taiwan, if you were against the Ma Ying-jeou uh, uh, um, trade deal, which would have uh, uh, increased, I think, uh, cooperation with China, if you're against that trade deal, you're therefore pro-Taiwan independence. Um, I think there's a very dangerous trend, and it seems like uh, there's no sign, and it's it's already been happening. You know, for example, uh, music for uh, Anthony Wong, uh, Wong Yu Ming, um, was taken down. Um, anyone who um, Leon Dai, the actor, uh, he was accused of being pro independence. He was cut out of, uh, of, of a film. Um, he was edit. He was kicked out of Vicky Zhao's uh, newest directorial uh, film. Uh, so this seems like a very dangerous trend that might not this, be stopping. Didn't this bleed to... over to um, Denise Ho's concert too? N well, Denise Ho, it didn't. Not the concert, but she essentially she essentially she wasn't re-signed to her contract at Media Asia, and she had to become an independent artist. Um, and that's done well for her in some ways. For example, her concert was entirely crowdfunded by local businesses, so that earned her a ton of points uh, locally. And 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 she has taken that um, that sort of 
that that abandonment by the China market in stride by becoming an independent artist and by embracing um, um, herself as a local identity as a local Hong Kong artist. Um, so that helped her. But the fact is, you know, we got films like these, you know, with a bigger budget. They do need the Chinese market. Or you have an actor like Leon Dai, who obviously does does do a lot of work in china or a lot of taiwan actors who do work in china or even the hong kong uh, hong kong actors who do work in china anytime anyone any netizen you know starts blaming start starting start some rumor about the guy and then it goes it goes viral and then there there's your whole career because of some rumor that was started based on um um ignorance or or an inability to understand complex political issues yeah indeed it's a it's a very complex situation, and unfortunately, uh, much like other parts of the world, it seems like that the people on social media have a way of simplifying it into a sort of either-or situation, and sometimes that simplicity just doesn't work, and uh, promoting it ends up being bad for everybody. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. Coming up after this short musical interlude... Kevin's review of Bob Lamb in his first lead role, Lucky Fat Man. And welcome back. For our e-screen review this week, the Hong Kong film Lucky Fat Man, coming from director Jill Wong and starring Bob Lamb. And I believe, as you pointed out earlier, Kevin, this is his first feature role where he's the lead, right? That's right. Uh, so who is Bob Lamb? Bob Lamb is, um, you might have, you've probably seen him in a few films. Uh, he's the bald, uh, plumpy man who who gets a lot of supporting roles or cameos in uh, local comedies. I mean, Patrick Kong likes to use him a lot. Um, where else has he been been in, uh, Paul? If you remember, oh, he's like the uh, Chinese he's movies, TVB films. Yeah, he just pops yeah, up yeah, like, yeah. All, all over the place. Yeah, and actually, Bob has been had has had a pretty good string of supporting roles in Patrick Kong movies. For example, I actually liked him in in PG Girls, which was uh, produced by Patrick Kong, uh, where he did a very, actually a fairly dramatic role as, uh, as the um, long-suffering best friend as one of the, one of the main characters. Um, and he was actually quite funny in, uh, in uh, Alpha Love, Alpha Lies 2. As, as terrible, terrible, terrible as those films are, uh, Bob, Bob has always kind of done well um, in Patrick Kong films. And I guess Patrick Kong wants to give him opportunity, so he gave him um, uh, the, his first starring role, his own comedy, uh, Lucky Fat Man. Um, by the way, I'm angry because they stole the name of my memoir. <laughs> so now to think of something else, I'm really pissed. I mean, Patrick Kong has committed enough atrocities already. Now he's stolen the name of my freaking memoir. The hell? Okay. <laughs> would not forgive him for this. All right. The film is beside the point. All right. The story... <laughs> <laughs> the story of the film. Um, ever since he was forced to marry Hearn, uh, played by uh, fortune teller Mark Ling Ling, 10 years ago, Chow Chong Fat, played by Bob Lam, has been working at the Cha Chan Tan Lo Wat Gay um, and bullied by Hearn's family members every day. The only thing that brings Fat out of his rigid and boring life is a reunion with his first love, Sissy, who has actually married a cousin of, uh, of Fat. Motivated to rescue her from a terrible marriage, Fat buys a lottery ticket hoping to get the money to get out of his uh, boring life. But what would, what would he do when he actually wins? All right, so Bob um, Bob Lamb, first starring role. Uh, this is the first time he gets a, gets a lead role in a comedy, and in his very first starring role, Bob Lamb proves that he should not be getting starring roles. Um, like I said earlier, Bob has been always been better in small doses that's like a lot of the supporting players in hong kong um they they're the good um they like to steal the scene and they do do their own thing um they're fun to watch but 90 minutes of bob doesn't really give him a chance to sustain attention like bob bob is he's 
how do you, what is his appeal? You asked me what his appeal is. Actually, I wouldn't be able to tell you. He's funny, but he's not funny enough to carry an entire film. Um, so, so, so that is a problem. I mean, he, th- every scene here is Bob doing something, let's face it. Um, and he's trying very hard. You can tell he's trying very hard, but he's really not helped by the really terrible material. Uh, the script is co-written by Patrick Kong and it's even lazier than the usual Patrick Kong vehicle. Um, the lottery ticket plot twist I mentioned earlier doesn't even happen until 45 minutes into the film. And I looked at my watch so I know when it happens because I waited so long for it. The first 45 minutes are filled with half-assed movie parodies. Um, I think they're parodies of Keeper of Darkness, uh, Our Times, that's the, the Taiwan romantic comedy, um, and perhaps a few more. Um, and a lot of random gags involving the supporting characters. Uh, for example, Tommy Wong plays uh, the father-in-law, and uh, you got Gregory Rivers showing up as a cousin, and then you, there's a whole gag about um, Gregory Rivers and and Tommy Wong, you know, having an affair with the same same girl, and and then you know, and then they try to dump her on Bob or something like that. But you know, a lot of these random gags that sort of really drag the movie out and try to just be fillers on this overlong 90 minute movie um and there's really no plot to it's almost you can say it's a character study sure it's a character study but the character isn't that interesting and the actual study part isn't even that interesting um so it's it's really a drag to sit through um ironically the supporting characters actually steal the film from bob and tommy wan is pretty funny and lo hoi pan um uh, also shows up as a uh, as a, a fat uh, godfather, I think. And there's a really disturbing gag about um, Lohar Pan like, liking to watch uh, Japanese uh, porn, and then at one point, Fat even offers to to help him out while watching AV. It's I don't know why they thought that was funny. It was just really disturbing. Um, so anyway, when when the lottery plot kicks in, it takes a real dark turn around that last half hour that doesn't even make any sense and its resolution doesn't make any sense the the middle part of that plot twist doesn't make any sense and well okay much of the film doesn't make any sense um it's a wannabe chinese new year movie without the laughs or the star power or the energy or the talent or or any of that stuff that you like about chinese new year movies it's just a silly and not very funny movie, and it's I you know every Patrick Kong movie seems like a new low, except that he's so consistently low that it's hard to tell where's the bottom anymore. You're just, you're just down here all the time, man, and it's just really hard to place how bad this film is among his filmography. Um, I I watched the film I think with about ten other people in the cinema, and and you know it just. You could tell from the crowd that it just wasn't working very well. My question is, who keeps giving him money? Because, <laughs> you know, it's like somebody keeps paying him to write scripts and, and to direct films, right? Yeah, I don't know. I guess that con films are made at such a low budget that they somehow become profitable in the end. He just keeps getting people to invest in his and um, I know a guy. Actually, I know a guy um, who was offered to. Um, it was a, a, a book about his his late friend, and I think his late friend wrote the, wrote the book. Um, and, and he told me that Peck actually approached um, him and the other and the other friends about buying book. And Patrick Gong's pitch was that he didn't want to make a movie for the bosses anymore. He wants this nice drama. Um, when I said, don't trust that man. Do not trust that man. That would turn it into, you watch Patrick Gong, you, you know that man would turn into some manipulative commercial tearjerker film because I just don't trust that, that person. Um, no matter who's paying for the film, Patrick Kong has proven with his quality, his, his work, that this man is not a good filmmaker, and in no way, no pitch is going to convince me that he's suddenly going to change and become Steven Spielberg, right? Let's face it. Um, um, so I, you know, I I don't like to 
two. I don't have any real grudge against Patrick Kong. Like, I do not know the man personally, other than the fact that I've had to waste maybe 10, 20 hours of my life on his films. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and don't forget sitting hundreds through, and hundreds of dollars. Don't, don't forget sitting through a uh, couple seminars with him. Couple of seminars. Specifically, seminar? Yeah, we did at Baptist No, University. no, not yet. Oh my god! Why did you? Oh my god! <laughs> well, okay, that and, and and the money that I've sank into watching his films. Um, but the thing is, this man has had years to prove himself as a competent filmmaker, and he hasn't. So, so what's the point? I mean, I just you know, I watched this film for to do the show, obviously, and like I posted on the Facebook, you know, the things we do for this show, and that includes. Paying for that not even the movie group here would 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 be willing to pay for. I have to go watch this and and in in a, a warm pool on a Saturday afternoon for crying out loud. I could be watching an Oscar nominated film somewhere else, man. Is that a Saturday thing? Um, so I can give the first English language review of Lucky Fat Man. <laughs> so um, yeah. Well, I would have gone um, with you, sir. Would you... <laughs> I would have gone. Thank. Thank you, Paul. Um, so, would I recommend this movie? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, if you if you really do end up buying like a twenty five US dollar DVD just to watch this film, um, you should raise it your head. Just as I did when I walked out of cinemas. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, we'll be back. After that, I don't know if we can follow that, but we'll try. <laughs> uh, we'll be back to talk about uh, our West Green film for this week with Triple uh, X, The Return of Xander Cage. East Green, West Green. And welcome back. Our West Green review for this week is Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, uh, coming from uh, director DJ Caruso. With the cast including the return of Vin Diesel, also our buddy Donnie, Donnie Yen. Uh, international cast including also Deepika Padukone, uh, Chris Wu, Ruby Rose, Tony Ja, Samuel L. Jackson, and Rory McCann, among others. The story, pres- presumed, uh, previously presumed dead, Xander Cage resurfaces to rejoin the XXX program to help recover a device known as Pandora's Box. The device, which can force satellites to fall from orbit and impact anywhere on the Earth with missile-like precision, is sought after by a group of rogue agents led by Zhang, uh, played by, uh, Zhang, excuse me, played by Donnie Yen, and Serena, played by Deepika Padukone. Uh, as Xander and his team come into conflict with the rogue agents, though, they learn that they may have more in common than they originally thought. So, what do we have here? A continuation of the Triple X saga. Despite a larger budget uh, than the previous two films, this film falls short in terms of both tone and pacing and special effects and action. Um, I like the original Triple X concept back when it was done. The first film was in 2002. The sequel, which did not star Vin Diesel but starred uh, Ice Cube, um, continued on, I think, in 2005. Uh, I like the original concept, though, because the idea of this character becoming sort of an an agent, an American spy, but they tied it in with this idea of the extreme concept, you know, people who are good at extreme sports. You know, that was a kind of fun and interesting and appropriate thing for the era. Um, here we are some 15 years later, and a return to that is, I don't know if it, if it really fits. Um, the second film kind of had a tone and a, and a pace that was very different, and it was sort of all its own. It did continue the story somewhat with a few of the supporting characters. And so here, too, we get a further continuation with Vin Diesel returning to the, the title role. Um, but... He is showing his age. I mean, it has been 50 years. He's not quite as tight and as spry as he looked like in the original film, and that's to be expected. Um, the film here does riff on a lot of lines and, and gags from the original, um, which themselves were, you know, the, the main line was just a riff on the James Bond line with something along the lines of, you know, 
the things that I do for the Queen or something, uh, or the things I do for England. You could hear in a couple of the James Bond films, and Xander is heard as saying the things I do for my country. Um, and it's usually when he's about to, um, you know, have some some sexy time with uh, some unknown uh, models on screen or something like that. Um, so the the film tries to tie back and call back to the original films and and get that feel going, but overall the story just feels like a very been there done that kind of um, narrative. If you've kept up with the James Bond reboots, if you've kept up with the Mission Impossible films, if you've kept up with uh, the Kingsman series, what we're presented here is a lot of retread in terms of you've got a gadget, you've got powerful organizations trying to get it, and you've got you know these talented agents going up against each other, and you can kind of see the twists and turns they're going to throw at you coming from uh, a mile away. So um, the the story is no great shakes. What's really bad, though, is the dialogue. The dialogue is just cringeworthy at times. Where the original Triple X, I felt, was much better directed and at least the things that people were saying to each other felt like, okay, yeah, you know, this is a guy with attitude and, you know, it, it, it feels right for what they were trying to go for. Here it feels almost comic book-esque. Um, it's it's really just um, almost trying to be too comedic in, in some ways. They have moments where, for example, um, these sort of bio pages pop up like you might see in a video game as characters are introduced, which is an, something new that they didn't do in, in the first and second film. I mean, it can be fun at, at times, but it, it just really doesn't have the same sense of style and the same sense of, of um, development that I think the first film did. Um, the biggest downside, though, is that even though this film has a much larger budget, um, they rely way too heavily on green screen and digital effects, and this brings down the film considerably because I, I'm not—I didn't see the 3D version, but I watched it in um, what they call digital XD, which they charge the same price as the 3D version, but you don't have to wear the 3D glasses, and I guess it's supposed to be a brighter, cleaner picture. I don't know, but it really made the green screen scenes stand out um, noticeably. So, I mean, so you've got characters who are supposed to be standing at an army base and it looks like they're not on an army base it looks like they're in a green screen studio with an army base being um you know sort of matted in behind them in post-production um there are a couple action sequences where you have xander um doing some things um where it's just not you know you, you, you it looks like they're kind of pasting in his face at times um i mean you get standard action and, and gunfight sequences and all that's done fine but really it's these shots where people are just put uh, on a green screen that they just aren't done very well it's not meshing very well with the rest of the film and it seems like it with a bigger budget they could have maybe gone and just done things in a more practical manner like they did with uh the first film the first film has a couple really good st solid stunt action pieces and here they kind of just go for um, CG work instead in some cases um, but we're really here to talk about the reason I went to see this film <laughs> for the most part I mean I love Vin and I would have seen seen it because he's in it but also it's got Donnie Yen coming in um, and so we're here for the Donnie right uh, he's fine he gets a few action pieces he speaks some English dialogue I think he has perhaps considerably more dialogue here than he had in Star Wars Rogue One although it's a little bit ham-fisted in terms of what they do they sort of re-edit and they I think they post dubbed him a few times in some reverse shots where you're not seeing his face um, but overall he handles he handles the dialogue well um, he gets a couple fight scenes and it's always good to see him in action but they kind of ruin it too because they go with the born style shaky cam uh, approach and you don't do that with Donnie Yen um, you do that with somebody who doesn't have the choreography and the fight experience of someone like a Donnie Yen but you don't do that with Donnie Yen uh, it really did, pulled me out of the film anytime he was 
fighting because it wasn't clear. I mean, you go back and look at the scene, just doing a quick comparison with the scenes he he did very briefly in Star Wars Rogue One, and it's like night and day between that film uh, and this film. And I just, I, I really bring it down to the director, um, DJ Caruso, who, I mean, he's got a few films under his belt, most notably, I want to think, um, Disturbia and Eagle Eye, and what was the one? I am number seven, you know. So, I mean, uh, he's coming from a stronger TV background. I just really think that um, maybe he wasn't the best person to try to pick up the franchise here. Um, because in terms of the scope of the, the franchises, having seen uh, the first film a couple times and the second film once, uh, I would say this is a step down from both of those, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, other faces here, too. You have Chris Wu, who, you know, U.S. audiences are going to say who. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you follow Asian films at all, you'll know uh, he's a singer primarily. I think he did um, he did songs in one of the Tiny Times movies. And I think he had a role he, in... He was, a, he, he was the member... He was a member of Korea's biggest boy band. Yes, and, and he was... Um, yes, I think he, so. He was in a, a film a couple years ago, I think 2015, Somewhere well, Only he, We Know or something play, like that. Yeah, Somewhere Only We Know. He plays the monk in the new Journey to the West film. Uh, he also has a cameo in The End of Mermaid. Uh, but mainly he is known as the, the former member of Korea's biggest, who is still Korea's biggest boy band. Right. Um, yeah. So he's here. He's he's brought on as sort of the Xander Cage team uh, DJ because every you know every team needs a DJ guy, right? Um, well, at least Xander Cage's team does. Uh, he he has some some comedic moments too. Um, he gets some time with Rory McCann, who uh, fans of Game of Thrones will know as the Hound. Uh, he's he's here as sort of the driver, and he's a bit of a loose cannon, a bit crazy. And uh, he him and Chris Wu get some buddy time together. And when they were on screen together, it was kind of fun. Um, you have sort of as the female lead here to pick up uh Padukone, and she's um uh she's a bollywood actress who's um you know done done a couple films and she she holds her own here i'd say against all the testosterone on the screen between her donnie and vin diesel uh, and the addition here of tony ja who's unfortunately underused i think tony ja um doesn't get much in the way of english dialogue um which is understandable but really as an action star too, um, doesn't get quite as much screen time as Donnie Yen. Um, and I think that a lot of the American audience may not even recognize him, uh, the way that he's sort of made up in the film. Um, so yeah, you, you get sort of the expected action from the, the three leads, you know, Vin Diesel going around pounding stuff at times. Um, Donnie Yen doing Donnie Yen things and Tony Jaa, you know, using his style of action in, in a few scenes. But there's one expected action sequence that never really comes, and I won't say what that is because I don't want to spoil the movie for too many people. Um, but I was expecting to see something, and I never saw that thing. Um, it was an expectation that you'd think logically should occur at least at one point. Um, you know, fans of Fast and the Furious will, will, will know what I mean when a certain character shows up in the franchise and you've got a certain other character in the franchise and you expect something to happen right and and so uh i won't say more than that but you know it's a popcorn movie to be sure and i i love vin and i like the triple x character um but this film sadly really needs better handling and, and better treatment um i don't know if they plan to go forward doing more of these you know because the well, the one thing about this series is that they continuously kill people off, and the people keep coming back. So it is very comic book in in that sense. If you've seen the other two films, you'll know what I mean. Um, and that's fine. That sort of becomes almost a gag within the show. Um, and even even Samuel L. Jackson here, um, there's a funny line, a funny reference, because the first film was sort of a predates Iron Man and Avengers by a little bit. And his character is very much sort of a Nick Fury kind of character, and they actually make a reference, uh, a kind of an in-joke gag about that uh, in the film here. But, uh, you know, it's a January release, so you can kind of expect that it's not what they maybe hoped it would be. They didn't hold it till summer. 
Um, so you know it's not going to be up there with sort of super your blockbuster status. It's a popcorn film. If you liked the first one and the second one, um, and you can check your expectations at the door, you know, go in and check this out for a matinee or wait for uh, video rental to, you know, at least support Vin and to support Donnie. Kevin, any any chance you're going to go see this or? Oh, I saw this last week. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, of course. So, um, so thoughts on it? Well, the film is not made for an American audience. With this kind of cast, um, with a cast like the Pika Pedagone, and, and you got Chris Wu, and you got Donnie, um, and they even though the opening um, ha- is a soccer player, Neymar. Neymar. No one knows about soccer players. I mean, they put oh, they put Neymar in the very first scene of the film. Because they don't care about an American audience. They're trying to make their money back internationally. And it's already done well. It's done very well in, in India, where it actually dubbed the film uh, for Indian audience. Um, Singapore even has it in Tamil, for Southern, South, in, in Tamil language, because of the Pika Petacone's uh, uh, presence. I, I, hear, I heard that it broke opening records in Thailand. Um, so this it's already telling me that this film is not made for an American audience. It's made to make international money back. Um, and and to me, it's got one of the most clever, diverse casting, I think, in a, in a Hollywood film. And unfortunately, that's really the most clever thing about the film because the rest of the film is so dumb. And Triple X is dumb, all right? It is like, it's already pretty dumb. Um, and, and it's almost like they're trying to out-dumb the other films. I don't know why. Um <laughs> <laughs> You think you know more money? You know, well, actually, the budget is about on par with the first film. I, I think the first correct. film was about seventy million, and this one, from what I looked at, was like eighty-five. So it's not a, yeah, it's not a big leap. But even so, I mean, for, uh, you know, what is what are we on? Uh, Fifteen years later, um, for it to have a a look that's not quite as good as the first film, um. 15 years well, later with a bigger budget I just think is is that's that's a bit surprising for me. Well well 15 years ago a 70 million would go farther than 85 million dollars today especially with that cast. I mean yeah, Donnie true. is not a Donnie is not cheap. Topeka I don't know. I mean the rest that whole getting that cast together is not cheap. Um um so it, it, but the problem is it's a very very dumb script and Triple X is already pretty dumb and here it's just um the how I mean they sort of add some complexity to it to to the whole you know the dynamic between the characters, but it's just sort of pretend because they're too lazy to even bring up anything intriguing about that. Um, um, the third act twist comes out of nowhere, and it just seems like a very lazy way to end the film. Um, I thought some of the action was I thought some of the action was very good. Um, I, I think that they do more, and, and it may just be my brain, and I think they did more sort of in-camera stunts than the previous film. I didn't watch the second film, by the way. Um, so, But compared to the first film, I think they did more in-camera stunts. I mean, you see more stuff there done practically, like the skating stuff in the beginning, uh, Donnie's action, obviously, I mean, wired assisted, but done in-camera. Um, and I think the the plane the plane thing at the end where they flip, I think that's done in camera, not not with special effects, because it's impossible to do that kind of stuff with special effects. I think you could tell by the way they did it. Um, I think Donnie was was pretty cool. He gets second billing in the film, by the way. That's that's even better than than Rogue One. Um, he's pretty much the second lead of the film, um, and uh, I think that this year is going to be very big for him if this film does well uh, around the world. Um, which it, but, it's slated to do. I mean, already in the, like the first week, it's already at I think seventy million in revenue and you global know, with an global. with an eighty five budget, they're gonna well well outperform that. So, well, globally, I mean, in the states, it only made it only made twenty million, okay. which is which is quite um, it's much lower than the first film, even with the original star returning, and you got you know Diesel coming out with Fast Eight, and you would think that oh you know it should have done better, but um, but I think globally it would do okay. It, it has to remember it, a film has to make three times its budget back to break even. Right. So so um, it's going to be hard to tell because I mean the word of mouth on this thing is not going to be great. Let's face it. Um, Deepika, I have to say uh, Deepika Pedicone, my favorite Bollywood actress. 
she is my favorite Bollywood actress. So, so you were saying that she holds against her own. I've seen her in much better roles in Indian films. So seeing her here is kind of well, it's cool to see her with the two guns and stuff like that. But having seen her, you know, go up against uh, Shah Rukh Khan, you know, she's acted against some of the biggest actors in India. She really holds her own in those movies. You talk about Om Shanti Om or in um, Piku, where she's Amitabh Bachchan's daughter. For, for crying out loud, uh, or in Chennai Express again against uh, uh, um, uh, Khan or Yejiwani Hedewani, where she is like the female lead, or um, Ramnila, where she is in this uh, Romeo and Juliet story. I've seen her much, much better performances. So here it's it's kind of weird that she's just sort of the sexy, sexy female lead, and that she doesn't really get much, much chance to stretch. I mean, let's face it, it's this, this script is not going to give her a chance to do something like what she does in like the Indian remake of Romeo and Juliet right or 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 a drama where she's the daughter of India's you know most suspected actor nothing like that but if you guys do like the Pika Petticone I suggest you guys watch a few of her Bollywood films and you will see why Vin Diesel choose to cast her I absolutely I I love 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 the Pika Petticone mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, but otherwise the film it's it just you know i think i tweeted this i mean well for, oh, chris Wu, that character you know what when they have introduced each character and they have uh they have a a strength you know one of them is is uh can can fire a gun as a sharpshooter and the other one's like like is a guy oh, they're de- different talents right and then for some reason chris Wu is fun to be around like they couldn't even <laughs> <laughs> they could even write a script where they found some use for one guy, like it's a four-man team, they couldn't really give him a freaking talent. This is how lazy the 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 script writing is. Okay, let's forget the fact they didn't give anything with Tony Jaa to do. Okay, I can I can buy. It's okay. There are too many characters anyway. But when it's the one of the member of your hero's four-man team, and you can't find a a, a pragmatic, a real reason for him to exist in the team, get a get a get another writer, man. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. I mean, the one thing that I will say that's great about this film is, I mean, technically it is it is an international cast and it is a film full of color, right? I mean, you know, you could nitpick Vin Diesel. You know, he's I think he's uh, he's claimed he's like um, half a person of color. His mom is white and I think his biological father um, is uh, is a person of color. It, I'm not sure. Uh, what, he's Italian American, as far as I know. Um, is that it? Yeah. But you've got. Yeah, I mean, when you look down the cast, Donnie Yen, uh, Dapika, Chris Wu, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good international cast where you really don't have a lot of masculine white faces or female faces popping up, right? I mean, the the the, the closest you get is with uh, I think Tony Collette's character. Um, and maybe Ruby Rose, right, from um, Australia. Orange, Orange is the New Black, right? Um, so you get, uh, you know, it, it, the cast is impressive, and I think they're fine. I like seeing all these people on screen. I just wish they'd had better attention to detail and a better script because the dialogue, really, I, I mean, some of the things these people are saying to each other, it's like, do people really talk like that? I mean, it really sounds like um, 70s comic book stuff at sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you don't expect, you don't ex- especially, you don't expect Oscar Wilde from Triple X, right? Let's, <laughs> let's face it. Um, um, but, but it's just the real. The, I don't mind bad dialogue in action films, um, but it's just the laziness of and how just it's not inventive. I mean, you got a cast like this, and you've got this cool idea. I mean, the first Triple X film was directed by Rob Cohen, all right? This is a guy who did the worst Mummy movie. He did the first Fast and Furious movie, which I think is still the worst, and and he's just... And, and it, when, when you make a film that can't outdo that, like... Then, <laughs> Then and, and and fifteen years on, and you still haven't learned a lesson from that. Then you know you have a you know real lazy laziness problem going on here. I think. Yeah. Well, um, you know, my hope is that Vin Diesel will get Donnie and uh, Deepika and uh, Chris Wu and the others, and throw them all in a Riddick movie together. That'll be fun. Oh, I think I, I just rewatched part of Rick the the other night on TV, and I think we're done with that too. Just <laughs> just just give them a better movie. For crying out loud. 
You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snowsy Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And we're over on Facebook at eastswests. I urge you, too, to follow along with Kevin and all the things that he's doing as he's moving and shaking across the planet. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? Uh, you can read my work on Discovery Magazine uh, and Silk Road Magazine on Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragon Airways. Uh, January, I'm not sure when this show is going to be coming out, but January I write about... Um, uh, I don't remember anymore, but I have a couple of articles in January... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I totally don't remember. I mean, this is too long. Uh, February is coming out. I remember what I wrote for February. I wrote about uh, the new Almodovar, Pedro Almodovar film, Julieta. Uh, um, you can read that on, uh, and also my reviews for the TV programs on the plane, um, uh, on the on the magazine. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. Once that's at the Golden Rock, one word. Um, you can email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com, even though no one does it, but you're still welcome to do it. All right. Our next show, episode 215, should be uh, heading into the Chinese New Year films, right? Uh, with uh, Journey to the West 2, The Demons Strike Back. And I'll be taking a look at the sixth film in the Biohazard slash Resident Evil series, Resident Evil The Final Chapter. We can only hope all of that and more on our next show until then this is the east screen west screen podcast saying we wish you good viewing and we'll see you next time see you next time everybody and happy new year I can hear him. I thought it was a plane. It's a drone. China's, it's a, China's spying on us. It's a Chinese drone. <laughs>